Welcome everyone, I'm Rina Warner and um, it's a great pleasure and rather exciting to have such a full house for the workshop on the Library of Allied Literature. Well, I'm, I'm just going to make introductory remarks that are mostly housekeeping, but I do want to say first of all um, a huge thank you to NYU Abu Dhabi for the extraordinary support and generosity they've shown towards the whole project. And I think it's very fitting that it should come here um, not only um, because Birtian van Gelder and the great tradition here, but also because Philip himself was an undergraduate here in literature and then did his Oriental languages um, as a graduate. And I think that's really what the focus of our, of our day's explorations is, is this interface between comparative literature and the Arabic corpus that's being, in, that's being created by the, this pioneering publication project. Um, and uh, I then want to thank very, very much Chip Rossetti, who's the managing director of the publications. He's very good there. there. Um, and Gemma and, um, Juan Simo, who's done an amazing amount of work. Most of you, I think, would have been corresponding with her, so you know that. But many more people have helped this to happen. And I'm thanking them now, hoping that the day will go well. <laughs> um, because I think we're going to get into a rush and at the end there may not be time. Um, so, Mohamed Salah Omri and St. John's and the Oxford Comparative Criticism and Translation Network have also supported the workshop and the series of seminars that follows, which begins on <coughs> Tuesday with a reading of the Maison Française by Abdel Fattah Kilito and followed on Thursday by a seminar here at Orso, again with Abdel Fattah Kilito. The handouts um, containing an essay by Abdel Fattah and one or two other things, a very interesting interview with Robin Cresswell, um, are there on the table on the right for any of you who want to come either to the reading of the Maison Française or to the seminar following. Um, Anne Simonin, the directrice of the Maison Française, has also been a tremendous support, and several of the writers are staying there too. And Anne has also agreed heroically to be the fire officer of this room today. <laughs> so she's there, and um, she's going to keep the door open when the alarm sounds so that we can all go out without the door closing and we all die by being <laughs> um, And then um, I want to thank very, very much Veronica de Tomas. Where are you? Maybe she went downstairs. She is um, who, who is a graduate student there doing um, Vietnamese literature and French, and she's been helping me here on the ground. So she and, she and Gemma work together. Um, and, uh, and then to all the staff at All Souls, done a lot of catering, and will have done a lot of catering by the end of the day. Oh, this is wonderful. The mic has arrived. Thank you so much. Sorry, the mic is no, no, not good. It's the location. Anyway, it's the still fine. It's It's still fine. 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 It's so if you do have a strong objection to that, you must register your name and then you will be deleted from the recording. But um, 
Um, I'm sorry if they didn't reach you, the permission forms, beforehand, but they were meant to be sent out for you to do that. And um, another very important aspect, which is probably already in the case, is that Wen Chin Yang has agreed to be the timekeeper. <laughs> so she's in position now, because we have a very full programme. And in, in um, respect of this very full programme, there will be no introductions. So the chair of each panel will not tell you who the people are, but you have the biographies. And um, we're guess. asking every speaker to <coughs> say who they are when they first start speaking. So that on the recording, we will know who they are. Um, I hope you don't mind not having your not be having been charmingly introduced by someone. Um, and then, uh, the, when you ask a question, you will need to speak up, and will you please also say your name as well. So now we can begin. Thank Philip thank is going you. to introduce the day. Well, thank you, Marina. Uh, it's, it's a bit exciting for me to, to finally have arrived today. Uh, can you hear me at the back, Robin? I normally... <laughs> I'm normally mic'd up. Um, I would like to begin with, with thank you, a huge thank you to Marina for for inviting us to All Souls, which um, when I was at Oxford for 25 years I lived in Oxford, 15 of them at the university, and All Souls was always the hallowed sanctum. <laughs> and we're in it, it today, and it's, it's very exciting for Lau and very symbolic for Lau to be here. Um, and I, I see it as part of its trajectory of growth, because what we really want to talk about today is a, a trajectory of growth from the incipient phase of this project to how we want to make it a success for, for readers of English throughout the world, really, to introduce um, some of the gems of Arabic literature. So I thank all souls. I, I mean, as I say, I'm extremely excited to be here, although I, I love Pembroke, and I'm very pleased that my mentor, Alan Jones, is here, yeah, my first teacher of Arabic. <coughs> um, and, and I was at St. John's as a GRF with Robin, the best wine cellar in town. Uh, but being all sold somehow is taking us to a, another level. So, um, as I say, this is part of our trajectory. We feel uh, we'd like to introduce you through the course of the day, Arabists, non-Arabists, people interested in literature and conflict, uh, to the library's mission writ large. Uh, which also means uh, a conception of literature writ large, because what the Arabic, the Library of Arabic Literature, does not mean is Makdamat uh, al-Adab al-Arabi. The Arabic translation tells what, us a lot about how we conceived the library and its scope. al maktab al-Arabiya, not Makdamat al-Adab al-Arabi. So that means uh, that it, it could have been uh, called uh, the Library of Arabic Letters. I think it might have been more appropriate or more accurate uh, in reflecting the broad generic range of the works that we want to, um, to work with. We want to work with all and any works, really, that are pre-modern, taking us up to the 19th century. A book in press at the moment is Moeli Hayes. Uh, with Roger Allen's just produced that's in press. It'll be out any day soon. By the way, this is an exciting day also because Consorts of the Caliphs, a book which I suspect even veteran Arabists will know uh, very little of, 
or even not know of its existence. It's hot off press, and it's been received very excitedly by Marina. I must say that because she's written a very generous forward, which shows how it can be used and read by people who are not not Arabic. Uh, so, what I want to say is is that the Library of Arabic Literature literature <coughs> is about letters broadly conceived. Uh, we attend the basic modus operandi <coughs> to, to choose a text and to edit it in, in, in its integrity, looking at the manuscript tradition and the, uh, the, um, the tradition of editions, bad and good. Mostly, mostly they're bad. Uh, <laughs> as a percentage, and uh, produce a, a feeble text with annotations possibly going on online. We have a, an important online uh, presence, which is very important to us in, in helping us do what we're doing today, which is to promote the library, uh, to beat our chests and scream out to the world that we're here and inspire books and read them. Um, so, um, I need to not say too much more, but to say one or two things about the remit. So we're going from 1900 back to Pizarre Arabia. We want to produce a corpus. We don't have any sense of a canon. Some of the works are canon canonical by chance. Some of the works are completely unknown, like Consorts of the Caliph, although Consorts of the Caliph was a very well-known book at the time that it was written, because Ibn Messiah was very important in the uh, Abbasid court just on the eve of the Mongol invasion. <laughs> He was a famous man of his time, but he's been forgotten by literary history. So, we want a corpus, not a canon, integral text, with English translations that are fitting to the 21st century. Um, and on the whole, we've started with texts that haven't been translated yet, but that's not entirely the case. And Joe Larry will speak about one text which we've started with, which was translated before in the 60s. So, um, so. <coughs> Without further ado, I will now segue into the panel. Yes. Segue was a word we never used in Oxford when I was a student, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> it's true, I never heard it. Um, so today, this panel is called Remembering. Uh, and it was originally written re-membering. <laughs> the idea being to... Just to talk about... Um, the beginnings of the project, remembering the corpus, not the canon, or remembering what's on in the canon and what's uh, in Arabic in the Arabic corpus beyond the canon. So, we started the first book that came out in the library was the anthology of classical Arabic literature, which, as an anthology, came out in paperback straight away. Uh, it's an English-only anthology produced by. Um, my distinguished colleague and, and friend, the Emeritus Lordian Professor of Arabic, Khertian Van Khel, who's going to read out something in a minute. If you look at the table of contents, well, it's got prose and poetry. That's what you'd expect in a classical Arabic anthology. Uh, but it doesn't... It chooses some texts that are canonical, but not many, I would say. You know, it's a personal choice. Is it, this anthology is sui generis, as every anthology is. But I would say it's less canonical than a traditional anthology would have been, trying to represent all the works, all the refer reference points you tend to read in in a in a literary history like Roger's literary history, Roger uh, Allen, uh, 
the big one and the small one. <laughs> so, no, we have a Qasida by Abid ibn al-Abras rather than the Mu'laqa of Ibn al-Qais. However, there are some canonical texts like a victory owed by Al-Mutanabi, the Qasida of Sayf al-Dawl, who would capture the fortress of al-Hadath. You would expect some canonical, so-called canonical texts. Uh, and then some, this is a wonderful anthology because it introduces us to so many diverse texts, uh, uh, including a zajl on an elegy on, an, on the elephant Marzouk, which takes place in medieval Cairo, and if you haven't read it, it's worth reading about what happens to this elephant when it falls in a canal. And I can't remember whether it um, survives or not. But <laughs> so, um, my... It's a wonderful anthology, and I've said that before. The truth of the pudding is that I'm going to use it when I teach a course next semester on introduction to masterpieces. Well, that's unfortunately a carryover from a standard title of courses in the States. I'd like to get rid of that title. Um, masterpieces of Arabic Literature in Translation. This is going to be the, the linchpin of that course. And one thing I will do is read Georgiani to my students because I think he's one of the most uh, a hidden gem of world, of, of world letters and one of my personal uh, uh, desiderata is to make the works of Georgiani, the two works, Asrad al-Balaka and the Dalai al-Ajaz a priority for Lao in the next five to ten years to have the whole of Georgiani, who was just a master thinker of, of, of poetics, imagery, and syntax, and how it enhances the meaning of language in those two works is key. So if I have time, I'll read a bit of Georgiani. The best thing I can do is, is stop speaking and invite my colleagues to speak, either remembering the text, reminiscing about things, or, or showing us how you can put together uh, a corpus in, in, a way, in a way that is sui generis. But what will happen with the library, by the way, is that in its first phase, it's a, by its very nature eclectic, as eclectic as this anthology is, but that each work that represents a genre is, there stands as a marker or a tree <coughs> or in, in an incipient copse, if you like, and then it'll attract other works to it to be translated within the same genre. And eventually, from these growing copses you will have a, a forest which will be a corpus uh, so having said that please I'm pleased to introduce uh, I will ask Khertian to uh, say uh, a few words I wonder if I should stand up perhaps that's easier yes, yeah. people yeah. Yeah. see me and hear me I'm Khertian from Helder which should be easily pronounceable to people who know Arabic and others can call me I also listen to the name of Gerard um, I'm, of course, very pleased and flattered, even indeed, by Philip's introduction. Uh, my uh, anthology is a bit of the odd one out in the series, because uh, the series properly, of course, is a, presents Arabic as well as English text on facing pages, whether the Arabic should be on the left or the right is a moot point, which we'll maybe discuss later. But uh, <laughs> uh, my, mine is only in, in English. I just give the odd couple of lines in Arabic just to give a flavor of the original in transliteration and in Arabic script. Um, it grew out of my 40-odd years of reading text with students, first in Holland, in Kronin, and then in Oxford. And uh, I, once made, I thought it would be nice to make a selection of this, uh, make an anthology in English translation, 
and I uh, offered it years ago to uh, OUP, um, something like World Classics or some series. Uh, I thought he might be interested, but not at all interested. It was a lady called, I think she was called Luna or something. She was not interested in Arabic, I think. But um, uh, Philip called me into this, and he said, well, perhaps it's something for the LAL. And, uh, well, it was a very uh, generous offer, and uh, I am very glad that it was accepted by the LAL. And I had enormous help from Philip and James Montgomery and Sharkat, who uh, put enormous energy in it, and also some anonymous readers who gave... Uh, advice, which I not always followed, because I have very uh, strong views on translation, which I could sit down and say, but it's all in my introduction, but I, I will not uh, do that now. Um, I think, for instance, poetry should have some kind of meter, preferably also a rhyme, although that's easy. Uh, that's not easy to do for uh, all Arabic poetry with this mono rhyme. I have used rhyme only for uh, for funny poetry, for light verse, so to say. Um, anyhow, um, I, th I think I should write. I should read out uh, just one fragment. It's difficult to uh, to choose a selection from a selection because it's, as Philip said, a very personal selection. <coughs> and uh, I did not, as I say in the uh, introduction, not once again the Mu'alaka by Imbul Qais and I stop you to uh, my two friends. That is weak because it has been trans translated so many times. It's certainly, if there is a canon in Arabic, this is canonical. But uh, so I left that out, but there is uh, much about remembering. This panel is supposed to be about remembering, or re-remembering. Uh, so, of course, uh, there is lots of remembering in Arabic poetry. So I selected a few lines from this poem that you have mentioned by Abid al Abras, pre-Islamic. Um, and um, it's from the introduction, which is always uh, elegiacal, elegiac and uh, uh, tries to remember things past. So there we go. The summer winds have blown above it. It's about a piece of desert, a desolated desert. The summer winds have blown above it, one behind another, and still the wind, trailing its skirts, obliterates the traces. There I detained my friends, interrogating the abode, the collar of my cloak soaking with tears, in yearning for the tribe, the days the clans will gather there. But how can those like me be mo moved and yearn? For greyness has now come over my locks. The fair bade me farewell forever in disgust. Yet often have I soothed my cares when they appear to me with a she-camel, sturdy like a blacksmith's anvil, swift. And then he goes on to describe his, his camel, which is a standard top. It's almost hackneyed, this, but still it's, it moves people. And, um, well, this is, I don't know how much time I have, but um, as for the prose section, because there's also, uh, I, I, as Philip said, I divided my book in, in poetry and prose, because that's what the Arabs themselves often do when they divide <coughs> the genres or forms of literature. Um, there is some interesting passage about remembering also. There is, um, at the end of a, uh, well, an essay, you could call it, uh, by Tawhidi, one of my favorite writers from um, <coughs> the late, ninth, late 10th and early 11th century, um, he writes down discussions that he had, uh, discussions in the evening with the vizier and some other people. And the vizier at the end says, in Tahiti's word probably, well, that was a long and rich talk. I really needed a conversation like this. It was actually a conversation about which are superior, Arabs or non-Arabs. And I, of course, you should read it all. That was a long and rich talk. I really needed a conversation like this. You should find some time to write it all down so that I can peruse it, peruse it enjoy its sweetness and extract its original thoughts. When you hear something, the words fly up in the sky. But if you see them with your own eyes, by reading a book, they land on earth again. What flies up is hard to grasp. 
What has landed is available to, your, to the eye. If you cannot fully memorize words that I heard, you will remember some things only with your fancy, without certainty, helped by your imagination, without being able to check. Of course, this is a good point in Arabic culture in general, the oral versus the written, and some people would still say that the oral tradition is more important than the written. The written is at most a kind of ed memoire, uh, something that helps you remember things. But this vizier apparently believes more in the written tradition. And of course, I could also uh, refer to the works of Jahez. Uh, uh, James Montgomery has just published a wonderful book on Jahez and praise of books, but I'm, I, I think there's a book to follow Jahez in censure of books, or is it in dispraise of books? In censure. In of books. So that's still a point that uh, <coughs> that still that still lives, I think, in Arab world. Um, I think I should stop here uh, because of the time. I could say a lot about canonical versus non-canonical. Yesterday, I had a, a nice dinner at, at Eagle and Child with uh, people like uh, Michael Cooperson and and Larry and um, and Devin Stewart, and we discussed what's this idea of the golden age? Where does it come from? I think it was uh, uh, was it you who said no? It was Michael, I think, who was um, saying that, and. Uh, Perhaps the golden age, well, perhaps it's an invention of, of, of later people, uh, perhaps of the Nahda people, the people in the 19th century. You know, one remembers Gibbs' uh, introduction to Arabic literature with the golden age, the silver age, uh, no, no lead or iron Brass age. Brass age. But, uh, Brass age. And perhaps it's also Tennyson, the golden prime of Harun al-Rashid, of course the ideas that live. But anyhow, we may have opportunity to talk about the concept of a canon or corpus later on in other panels. Um, I think... Uh, I should leave it at that, if you don't mind. Should we carry on straight yes, to, so, to yes. Ferry Art? Thank, yes. thank you. Okay, call later. Uh, I'm a late comer to this panel. Marina and uh, Philip asked me to say something about the project. Can you hear me at the end? Okay. I'm Ferry Ghazul, Department of English and Comparative Literature at the American University in Cairo. And that's enough for my mind. Allocated only and strictly 10 minutes. I will be brief in presenting what's valuable in the project of LAL and what still needs to be reconsidered. The Library of Arabic Literature, as initiated by NYU Abu Dhabi Institute, is above all a thorough and ambitious project. Translators who are specialists in a given field work on editing and translating a text from Arabic to English. They consult colleagues and editorial advisors, they revise accordingly and produce authoritative translated texts, even if not impeccable. It is the team spirit and the collaborative work that guarantees accuracy and readability. This series is not only relevant to Arabists, but also to those of us engaged in comparative literature and world literature. I am particularly delighted to have translations accompanied by the Arabic, thus making the source text conveniently available to the reader in a bilingual parallel arrangement. This indicates for me an appreciation of the authority of the source language. We all know that translations are necessarily interpretations, and thus it is important not to close the door of interpretation by offering the translation as a substitute for the source text. 
the bilingual reader can thus rethink alternatives to certain terms, locutions, phrases, and transla translatorial strategies. <coughs> Translation is never, ever definitive. The bilingual reader of the series gets engaged in a double dialogue with the source and the translated text. Grasping a text is not merely a matter of reading it. Comprehension is a process of dialoguing with the text that parallelism invites. But even if the reader is unable to decipher the Arabic script, its very presence, enigmatic and different from the Roman alphabet, provides a semiotic, uh, a semiotic visual clue to the, to the specificity and <coughs> punctuation and formatting conventions of the source text. Take, for example, the erotic story of the young girl and the dawn eater in Van Gelder's anthology. The translator chose to follow the Arabic text with its absence, complete absence of punctuation. This is justified by the nature of the text. A verbal, spontaneous overflow of a young person coming of age sexually. In articulating her experience without prior knowledge of foreplay and penetration, she exhibits defamiliarization of the sexual act. The lack of punctuation of the entire narrative <coughs> corresponds to the technique of defamiliarization as described by Sklovsky in his Art of Technique, in his Art as Technique. On the other hand, translator Humphrey Davis chooses to create paragraphs in his translation of Shidiak even when they are absent in the source. His choice is equally valid since it helps the reader to follow shifts in the complex and long narrative of leg over leg. Different as these choices are, each is viable in its context, underlining how strategies of translation should not be set as rules to be applied universally, but should be conceived as <coughs> principles emanating and pertinent to the nature of the text itself. Van Gelder has chosen in his translations to opt for foreignization over domestication in the target language, following the road condoned by Walter Benjamin and popularized more recently by Venuti. Yet Van Gelder's foreignization stopped short of making the text exotic and present a readerly text in English. If translation is a balancing act akin to walking on a tightrope, then translation of verse is akin to dancing on a tightrope. Van Gelder is a good dancer. <laughs> he often uses alliteration to compensate for rhyme schemes, giving the English reader a taste of the aesthetic power of repetitive sounds without being bound by the monorhyme so common in Arabic poetry, which would sound tilted if not ridiculous when imitated in English translations. 
The tendency of translators in this project to make comparison and contrast with other works is most welcome. As Edward Said has taught us, one does not read a literary text in a vacuum, but along and against and in comparison with other literary texts of its kind. Thus, Van, Van Gelder's pointing, albeit in contrast, to experienced Molly Bloom stream of consciousness in Joyce's Ulysses, to that of an innocent teenager in the aforementioned tale of the innocent child woman relating her, her, her erotic experience, situates the tale on a global literary map, just as the reference to Rabelais and Stern by Humphrey Davis, as analogous to Shidiat's style, does. <coughs> I am not a legal expert or scholar, but as far as Shafi'i's epistle is concerned, I wondered why it has to be retranslated since uh, Majid Khadduri had translated the entire episode on Islamic jurisprudence of Shafi'i in 1961. For me, and this might be my bias, I can see how retranslation of literary works makes sense given their ambiguity and metaphoric dimension. But I see translation of legal treaties as a precise literal text and thus needs no reworking. Of course, I stand to be corrected on this point. Now, I want to point certain areas that can be reconsidered in the project. And I will be short. I'll be short, but they can be elaborated later on. One, whether you call these texts a corpus, or a canon, or key text, or foundational texts, they are consciously or unconsciously making Arab contributions, making Arab cultural contributions for an English-speaking reader. They point to them. I cite from the way they are introduced. The Library of Arabic Literature is a new series offering Arabic editions and English translations of key works of, please listen to this, classical and pre-modern Arabic literature. By the pre-modern, with the exception of Shadiat, thanks to Humphrey Davis, one is asserting without stating that Arab high culture is something of the past. It's related to the past, but not to the present. This is an Orientalist view par excellence, from Lord Cromer to Hamilton Gibb. I beg to differ with this viewpoint and this framework of series. I'm not going to mention many names of the Arab, modern Arabs that can be included. I just mentioned two names, the Tunisian Mahmoud al-Masadi and the Egyptian Taha Hussein. The beauty of this project, uh, the, the next point is about formatting. The beauty of this project to me is that it's conceived as parallel texts. 
source text along its translation so that a glance at, at a, one glance one can read both enjoy both and ponder the choices of the translator in this merged bitextual document however and oddly enough the arabic text is set on the left and the english on the right when one would have expected the reverse order since english starts on the left and arabic on the right as presented the two texts seem semiotically to be looking away from each other rather than looking towards each other or embracing each other the third point is about transliteration i know uh, i'm going to differ here with professor van helder while transliteration is occasionally necessary the diacritical marks are both i find distracting and useless superfluous <laughs> furthermore 300 years or more 500 years 700 years and more of orientalism there is still no consensus on how to use diacritical marks to indicate certain consonants of arabic or vowels a cursory look at the bibliography of classical arabic literature by van helder the first book in in this series shows the varied and confusing diverse codes used in transliteration and diacritical marks van helder insists on them and also provides guidelines on how to pronounce these sounds these strange different sounds so that the english reader can reproduce the long vowels from the, uh, can distinguish between the long vowels from the short vowels via macrons and how the kh sounds like the scottish loch or german bach as he tells us all this so the music of the poetry is not lost on the reader as he puts it i doubt that you can find one non arabic speaker who would try to follow these intricate guidelines to produce the sounds of the arabic it would have been much better and much more meaningful to provide in the book an audio clip so that the reader can actually listen to the poetry recited and is moved by the very music inherent in arabic thank you Thank you very much. So now Joe Lowry is going to speak. Uh hi, Joe Lowry from the University of Pennsylvania. Um the sun now seems to be that we're going to stand. So I'm going to stand too. I will get back to the point about why retranslate the Rasal in a minute. Um but uh, since we have a very general title for this panel, I had some very general remarks about remembering uh Arabic texts and the tradition. And um the sort of background to these remarks is that being involved with this project has made me think a lot about who the audience for these uh, books are and whether the audience is just people who are curious about ancient arabic literature religious texts and so on or pre-modern texts as the case may be early modern texts whether uh, these texts have a role to play in the arab world of some kind or whether they're of interest to muslims who are interested in their heritage Um so that these are the things I've been wondering about and of course there there um questions where we really don't have clear cut answers I think the sales data are mysterious I'm not sure we can 
um, tell who we're selling to all the time or, or why people buy our books or where they're buying them. Um, but I think it would be interesting to know these things in, in a little more detail than we do. Um, because you're getting the projection on your face. Which is oh, right. what does that I do? just assumed that the general topic was does creating it, a bright light in back. It's not bothering me. If it's, it's not bothering you? Yeah. Uh, well, if you move to the side, you went, you're actually getting the coat of arms of all souls. Um, <laughs> maybe that means something. I mean, I, sorry, I'm sorry to bother Yeah, you. that's sorry. okay. So let me stand over here. Uh, so let me, uh, let me talk about a couple of aspects of remembering the corpus, which is the title after all of this panel. Um, first of all, what can we say about how the pre-modern uh, Arabic and Islamic tradition remembered works in the corpus? Well, this is something we can talk about, I think, with some uh, confidence. Um, some works, like the one I translated, Shafi'i's Risala, a short book, an early book on um, legal hermeneutics, uh, was remembered as a site of innovation by scholars. It was remembered as foundational by some. Um, many texts, uh, maybe not the one I translated, but others were remembered as sites of difficulty requiring glosses and um, uh, explanation. Some texts were remembered as problematic and became targets of polemic, and certainly that's true of the text I translated. So how are these things remembered by the pre-modern tradition? Well, it depends. Um, but this is something we can know in relation to many works. Of course, some of the works we translated are less well-known, uh, both within and without the tradition. The book on the consorts, which has just come out, is something which I think is, is later and has maybe less of a, left, less, uh, left less of a footprint in the tradition. And it's, uh, I think, largely unknown outside a few very specialized scholars in late uh, uh, medieval Arabic literature. So that's one, uh, one sort of set of parameters for remembering the tradition. Another question that's interesting to me is how do modern Arabophone readers remember the tradition? So this is, uh, here I'm, I have to speculate a little bit more, but I would say many of these works, uh, including many of the ones we translated, are probably unknown, I would say, to the general Arabophone reader. Some are canonical, of course. Some are remembered as classics, right? And I suppose these are the ones we would call canonical. Some, I suspect, are remembered as a complicated negotiation between the classical tradition and modern spoken Arabic in secondary education, in which there's probably a difficult dynamic between kind of retrospective appreciation of a glorious past and a inculcation of, or maybe the erection of barriers between the modern linguistic situation and that past. And then some are remembered as part of a religious heritage, and this is the um, kind of work that I worked on for the Library of Arabic Literature. And this issue of how the religious heritage is remembered is something I want to focus in on a little bit more now. So I actually have strong feelings about how people should think about the religious heritage and religious texts. Um, I feel very strongly that these texts are all sites of creativity, and I'm slowly getting back to this question of why it retranslate the Risala. They are sites of conspicuous and systematic exercises in problem solving by pre-modern authors. They are often self-conscious acts of system building and theory construction. And I think this is a place where we maybe haven't paid close enough attention to our authors is in their uh, theory construction and thinking about the dimensions of the kinds of theories that they, um, that they came up with to solve the various problems that they had. And when I say they are um, engaged in problem solving, I, I, I believe very strongly that the kinds of problems that they had to solve, which were linguistic or ethical or philosophical or theolo theological, were problems that we can appreciate intellectually. They're things that we can understand if we're willing to be patient and tease them out and try to get 
um, into the minds of our authors. Often, um, our authors of religious texts are engaged in difficult exercises in interpreting God's word. And again, I think the, the motivations for the kinds of solutions they come up with are something that we can detect if we're sensitive enough readers. So these are aspects that I would like us to remember and that I hope people would remember when we're thinking about pre-modern religious texts in the Islamic uh, framework. There are some um, aspects of the text that I, I would like us, uh, or, or, or there's a certain way of thinking about the text that I, I think is unhelpful. And that is, I think we're often tempted to think of texts in the religious tradition as sort of parallel repositories of facts. And I think this actually does a great disservice to the intellectual aspirations of the authors in question. Their writing, their approach, the things they're interested in, this is all actually contingent acts of interpretation. And um, I think we need to actually, if you think of them as engaged in contingent acts of interpretation, this actually makes their achievements much more impressive than if you think of them as people who are simply reciting some kind of parallel information that tells us how things really were. So maybe this uh, is the place to talk about why we translate something. Um, and I you know Khaduri is somebody who rendered great service to the field. He made a lot of works of early Islamic law um, accessible uh, to an English reading audience. And he was a fairly tireless translator. Uh, he, he translated a lot. He also translated works of Shaibani, another early Muslim jurist. But I would say this, and I... I should say, you know, I, I once gave a, a talk about uh, my translation of Shafi's Risala and Devin Stewart, uh, and I tried very hard to avoid saying anything bad about Hadouri's translation, but Devin Stewart stood up in, in front of an audience and said, well, can't you just tell us what all the problematic things are about Hadouri's translation and why it's so terrible? So I was forced then in public to go through these. But um, I would just say this, that I, I think if an English reader sat down with Hadouri's translation, they would have no idea what that book was about. And the, the reason is because I don't think Khaduri really thought the book was about anything. And the reason I think that he didn't think it was about anything is because he had um, made no effort at all to decide what of the appropriate rendering of technical terms um, from legal thought would be in English. And he winged it, in effect. And what this did, to my mind, was to completely undercut the systematicity of Shafi's uh, project. And it should be said, you know, because this is a foundational work, Shafi's work on legal hermeneutics, the fact that he was able to solve difficult problems of textual interpretation in a way that was systematic and in a way that he hoped would um, reflect what he undoubtedly perceived as the systematicity of revelation in general from a legal standpoint um, makes it important to bring that out to realize just how hard he worked and just how good his solutions were, even if they're contingent solutions, like all acts of interpretation. So um, that's what I would say in general. I mean, there are some other things one might mention, like Hadouri's rearrangement of the text in a way that was grossly inappropriate and also textually very uncareful. Um, but in any event, uh, you know, obviously, the Library of Arabic Literature is a, a massive attempt to remember the tradition uh, using individual texts, representative texts. Um, and it's platitudinous to say it, but uh, it's nonetheless true that we believe that these are texts that have enduring cultural value, uh, including Shafi's Risala, anthologies of Arabic literature, and every other kind of text 
that we are engaged in translating. And we think that their cultural value consists in probably being things that can be reinterpreted and reapplied over time and read anew usefully uh, so that we can reappreciate when we remember the tradition. So that's what I would say. But we have three questions outstanding. One is, why is pre-modern a cutting point, I mean a cutting off point? Why, um, are we, why do we use transliteration? Why have we got, why are we producing a text back to front? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, well, those are the two important questions that Ferriel asked, and fair enough. We should answer them, so I could do a, make an attempt, but I think someone else could make a better attempt than me. So if anybody's willing to answer, address Ferriel's. First question on pre-modern. Uh, well, I mean, what, what is the scope of our work? May I? Um, and Chaka Turao, Stone University in upstate New York, or Cornell. Uh, I don't think I, I think your, your your critique of the way we phrased that sentence, which has by the way been rewritten, that's actually an antiquated version of it, but we're going to have to uh, to revise it, is entirely fair in the context of that NYU Press marketing document and our attempt to sort of appeal to the world and say, look, we're doing this, this wonderful thing, and maybe it's not as wonderful as we think, but I think that's, that's entirely appropriate. But I think anyone who looks into the kinds of work in which the board is engaged, or in which the people, the translators and editors are involved, will know that our engagement with modern Arabic literature is immense uh, as, as a group of, of scholars, and we've just identified, under the guidance of Phil Kennedy, and also um, in the context of the grant, which funds the project, we've identified the pre-modern as an area which needs more attention from the likes of us. So that there are thriving um, prizes and presses and translators of the modern. I mean, Roger Allen today handed me yet another of his many translations. Um, you don't walk into rooms and you have people handing you translations of pre-modern classical Arabic literature you know, uh, all the time because it's such an enterprise and it's not valued. Right, either by the presses or by the public, and, and so on. So I think, I think we felt we were redressing uh, a lacuna or, or, or maybe even a wrong. Uh, but I, but I, I, and I, I think I can speak for all, the whole board. I take your point. I think we, we need to rethink the way we phrase that because it does make it seem like it's reified in some way or, or somehow special. And maybe we need to make the language a bit more fluid and say, you know, there's, a, there's an enormous heritage you know, the library's focus is principally on areas that have been underrepresented or something like that so that it becomes clear what our uh, intervention is. Because it's an intervention, right? It's not, a, it's not, a, it's not po a politics. It's just, it's an intervention and it's an attempt to intervene. In reality, at, at the most minuscule, it's not political. Well, well <clears throat> I won't go there. Um, it's, it's, the reality is that if we publish 75 books, which is the aspirational number, in the space of about... Uh, 12, 12, 15 years, we will have published 0.01% of the things which we would like to be involved with, right? It's this, it's this infinitesimally small number. And I think, for me personally, that's something I would like to convey. When we say to people it's like the load, or it's like the itakti, or it's like 
these other libraries, the reality is that those are already going to publish their entire corpus. And we, no, we, we can never do that. We couldn't even publish all original Josie if we wanted. And so it's, um, so I, I'm grateful for the comments. I think you're right about our presentation. But, um, but it, 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 the, the, the phrasing poorly reflects our attitudes as, as scholars and as, as translators and editors. Right. So the question of the margins, is the, I think, is the beginning of the answer to the question of why is the Arabic on the left page? and the English on the right-hand page, ostensibly back to front. Uh, the answer is a technical one, really. We did, of course, go round and round in circles on this question for, for, for days. Uh, but if, if Stuart Brown is here, then he could answer that, I think, in the most convincing um, way. Well, I didn't actually give the design, mm. uh, but I can certainly uh, explain that the... Um, uh, can you stand up, Stuart? Oh, sorry. Um, so I, I, I invented the design, but, but the, um, I, I, so I'm Stuart Brown, sorry, um, and I do the typesetting and digitization. And um, the, the meta language of the book, horrible term, but the meta language of the book is English. So um, the, obviously the directionality of the book itself is, is the way you would expect an English language book to be. Um, because that's that's simply the way any project like this, if you look at Loeb, any of these, they they, they would uh, if, if the introduction, if the notes, if all of the the, you know, the 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 scholarly content is in English, then it will run from as a, as a, as a English opening book, as a Latin opening book. In terms of having the left page and the right page, then I wasn't involved in that decision, but but as 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 a type typesetter, I'm quite happy with it. Because the alternative is that you have um, a very blocky image, so a page image. So whereas we are used to ragged edges of a page falling, you it, it would look it would look very odd if you had ragged edges falling internally rather than externally. We are used to the spine being where the it's type, typographical decision, but it's we are used to the spine being where where we, we see consistency in a book. Bearing in mind that you also have the marginal editor numbers. Now, in the first couple of books, we had the numbers the wrong way around. Yes, yes. <laughs> on, the, on the Arabic, now, so, so that, that was an interesting issue. But, but um, to, to locate the margin numbers internally by the spine, you would end up with a, a book which was, was very weighty towards the outsides of the pages, and typographically, you were more interested in having weight within the, the, within the center of the book. Um, so I, I don't know the specific decisions which Titus took. Did Titus, Titus hit or? No. Um, no. Uh, but uh, because I, as I said, I didn't do design. But I would happily, I, I happily take that on. I, I, would, I would also feel that if you had it the other way round, because it is um, in the meta language of the, is English, it would then look like it was, to, it would look like it was pushing the Arabic behind. So you should be having the, you know, the English, <coughs> Arabic first, and then the translation. And you know, any layer which had the Arabic on the right-hand page, to, to learners in particular, and I'm a learner of this language, so a very, very rudimentary learner, um, uh, it, 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 you, you should be seeing, your eyes should be drawn to the Arabic first. And if you have it the other way around, that won't be the case. Mm -hmm. I would also say, and again, not a decision I, I've made, but I don't know, with regards to the transliteration, and having worked on many different so I've worked with Sanskrit and I've worked with a, a number of uh, different um, uh, 
transliterated and, and uh, uh, classical language projects. Um, the problem with transliteration is really it is a case of you are damned if you are do and you are damned if you don't. Um, so if you attempt to precisely capture the uh, the characters of, of a of a language which has a number of alien sounds to to, to uh, English speakers, then if you attempt to precisely capture it, then the criticisms you lay are um, are available. But then if, if you if you go for more general transcription, which is what happened in in the uh, uh, Sanskrit Library. Well, the, I worked with the Sanskrit Library and they had a very odd system they transliterated one way within the text and a different way within the notes. Um, <laughs> but, um, uh, but they were then laid open to, 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 to the accusation of, um, of bleaching, of bleaching the language of, um, uh, and of, of not, not giving to students who wish to learn. And again, I'm now going to speak personally as a, as a, um, as a language learner. If all of the information is there in the diacritics, and um, then a person who does not understand the sounds of the language can ignore them. But if we bleach, then somebody who, who is learning does not have the option to try and get their heads around these. So as a learner, I very much favor having the diacritics, because you, you can walk past any um, uh, uh, any, any sign in Arabic and make, 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 make an attempt to, 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 to grasp it. But if, 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 if you don't know the, the, the script and you're just very much at well, uh, learner status, that information is invaluable. And to the person who doesn't, uh, to, to whom those, the, that information doesn't mean anything, they don't know the sounds, they, they can bleach it themselves. Great. Thank you. Thank you. So, Thank you, Stuart. I think we must now stop this panel. <laughs> <laughs> is, that, is that what you're going to say? Okay. Thank you.